morning. We're jumping in the Word. Grab your Bible. Here we go. We're working through 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 5, so scoop your Bible up and go there. Uh, as always, this is not church. This is us unpacking, well, me unpacking the Word and uh, kind of preaching it out there. And then tonight we'll gather it in order to talk through it and pray over this and other things, whatever prayer requests you may have and um, the others who are here. So Love for you to come be part of that. You're welcome to uh, hit us up online. We'll tell you how to find us. You can email us. You can uh, reach us through social media any way you want. We would love for you to come hang out and spend some time with us and give your thoughts on this. Like, what's God telling you? What questions do you have? And this is a great text for discussion. Believe me, this one's pretty loaded. So anyway, we've been talking through the cross-shaped life. That's what we've been kind of working this series around. And uh, a verse we chose for that is 1 Corinthians 2.2, our theme, even though it's 1 Corinthians. Paul's same author and same church. But he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So today's uh, look here on the cross-shaped life, we're going to be considering living in light of dying. Living in light of dying. And I didn't say live like you were dying, all right, the, the uh, Tim McGraw song, <laughs> not... You know, the bull named Fu Manchu and stuff. Not exactly the same. Um, it doesn't mean live each day to your fullest, absolute maximum pleasure because you never know when it's your last. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about living in light of dying in the sense of recognizing that this home is only temporary. And that death is actually the passage to glory. Um, and, and now is the time to live hard, to live hard for that day because it matters that you do. It matters that you do. And everyone's racing towards eternity. I don't know if you recognize that or not, but every one of us is racing towards eternity. The question is not about how much fun you can have before you get there. The question is, how. the, the point, uh, I should say, is how you live now is relative to what you expect when you get there. Hear what I'm saying? How you live now is relative to what you expect when you get there. And if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean sitting back and enjoying the ride, you know, watch the countdown because you're all cool and taken care of. It means everything about the way you live now has eternal implications. That's what it means. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what it means to live in light of dying. So let me read the text for us or a piece of it and then we'll jump in there. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to read, let me start at verse 6. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word, Lord, all, all of your word, but thank you especially for this letter to the Corinthians that, that Paul wrote that you preserved as scripture for us even thousands, literally, of years later. God, thank you that your word rings true at all times, in all places, and will continue to do so throughout all of eternity. I love you, Lord. I pray your word's heard today in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I tried looking up a stat because I was curious, but I couldn't figure out how to find it. But basically wondering how often people talk about death. Um, think about yourself. How often do you get in conversations about death? Now, I'm not talking about, 
Put the glasses down. I'm not talking about like the zombie apocalypse. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the walking dead or whatever. I'm talking about your death or the death of someone else. You know, our destiny as facing it one day. We all know it's coming. All of us, everybody. And if we're honest, it's, it's not very often that we talk about it. I couldn't find a stat, but I'm sure it's very rare that we do talk about it. And when it does come up, it's usually in relation to our age. We're getting closer to it in age. Or our circumstances, we're in a horrible situation and we're afraid it's coming. Um, I was noticing uh, last week was the anniversary of D-Day, uh, the invasion of France by the Allied forces to liberate and defeat um, Hitler, liberate France and defeat Hitler. And um, I can't imagine what it must have taken for those men to charge that beach. 156,000 plus troops hit the shore and it was all about getting from the shore to the cliff wall. And during that time, the machine guns in the cliff wall had an easy shot at everybody who tried to cross this long flat beach with nowhere to hide. Um, I am sure many, many, many soldiers walked into that assuming they were certainly going to die. Um, and many did, obviously. And, and maybe they even embraced it and said, you know, just let me, some probably tried to ignore it. Some probably just fully embraced it, maybe, and charged ahead. The courage that it took, either way you went at it, is beyond my ability to really even put my brain around. But Paul's talking about something else entirely here. He's talking about looking forward to death, okay? Not in a sense of escaping to it, but in a sense of living hard towards it. You know what I'm saying? Not trying to escape to it, but to live hard towards it. And Paul calls that good courage. All right? And like Paul, as we go into this and the Corinthians, we all face death. But in Christ, we have the hope of resurrection and eternity with him. And that should direct our lives. That should direct our lives to be lived in a way that is aiming to please God. In anticipation of that future and not in fear of death. So I'm going to break it down like this. How to live in light of dying. Uh, be aware that you are temporary. Okay? Be clothed by the Holy Spirit. I'll explain what these mean, of course. Be courageous in life now. And be anxious to stand before Christ. So... How to live in light of dying. First, be aware that you are temporary. Paul starts here in verses 1 and 2, and he's building off of last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We go back and watch it or listen to it or read, just read it. You don't have to have my approval. Just go back and read it. But in verse 8, where he said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Verse 16, he said, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed but day by day. Verse 18, he said, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So he's building off of all of that talk. And he says in verse 1, for we know that if the tent that is our eternal, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. First notice he says, we know in verse 1. We know that we have. Look at that language. We know that we have already. We have it already. How do we know that? Well, I can give you 
multitude of verses, but I'll let Jesus put it in his own words. In John 14, 19, Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. Do you believe that? That's what it comes to. Do you believe that? Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. And Paul's not talking about earth here and heaven, the place, the city or whatever, heaven in that sense. He's talking about two bodies, two types of existence, an earthly one and a heavenly one. That's what he's getting at. He mentions a tent here, which by nature is temporary. It's uh, not made to last forever. Paul contrasts that with a building that is permanent, that is established. It's almost like the idea of the Hebrew tabernacle that was discarded when the temple was built and completed. Tent is our earthly body. It's our jar of clay, as he already said. And the building is our heavenly body, what's to come, which we haven't realized yet because we're still in the earthly one. So one is destroyed, he says. One is eternal. One is born of a woman. One is made without human involvement at all. God alone has designed it. So um, Paul wrote about that to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he said, But our citizen, citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's what he's talking about. We will be made like him. Not God like him, but eternal and having a body of sorts like him. So he goes on, he says, be aware that, uh, or yeah, be aware that you're temporary and then be clothed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, verses three through five here, you'll see what I mean. Verse three, he says, if indeed, by putting it on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now, that's a curious phrase. By putting it on, we may not be found naked. Sounds funny to think you put something on, but then you're found naked. Um, let me read on and then we'll come back. Verse 4, he says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that would that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Some say Paul's expressing a desire here not to die. He doesn't want to die. He wants to live until Christ comes. And so they're saying that clothed is being alive, naked is being dead, and further clothed is being resurrected um, with, with Christ or being with Christ when he comes and gives you a new body. Um some say Paul's expressing a, a different place of existence, a place that's between death and resurrection, kind of a spiritual existence, but without any kind of body. And so their clothes would be the human body that we're in. Naked would be this spiritual existence without a body until a future day when we are further clothed in a resurrection new body. All right. And. Theologians have all kinds of different discussions and arguments between both of those. Uh, probably you may even have some thoughts on both of those. I'm not going to wrestle too much into it. I will say I do believe that he's only referencing two different uh, scenarios here. It's my opinion, but this is where I'm sitting. That the Because con- the context here of chapter 4 and exactly what he's talking about here, the context, he's only speaking of earth and heaven. He's only speaking of being in a state of suffering or hardship or being in the presence of God, which is eternal. That's only two places he's talking about. And death is just the single act that separates the two. That's 
That's been his whole topic here. So I wonder if maybe Paul's talking about being found naked as related to being left without hope. Uh, because in biblical terms, clothing becomes evidence of who you belong to. And you can look at this multiple places in the Word. But those without Christ are also going to be raised uh, their, from their, their bodies. Their, their earthly body is going to be gone and they are also going to be raised. But they are not clothed the same. Um, perhaps that's what it means to be naked. I don't know. John 5 verse 28 uh, Jesus said, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, speaking of himself, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he's telling you all will be, you know, every dead body, every body here, everything clothed in earthly dwelling will be resurrected person and then they will face a judgment um but only some face judgment and some face life depending on where they stand with the lord isaiah sixty-one ten says i will greatly rejoice in the lord my soul shall exult in my god for he has looked clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me clothed me covered me with the robe of righteousness all right Jesus told a parable in Matthew 22. I'm not going to go to it, but about guests at a wedding. You can go read it in your own time. They are both good and bad guests that show up that are present at this wedding. But then there's a distinction made with one in particular because he is there without a wedding garment. And when asked about it, he has no explanation for why he doesn't have one. And so he is cast out into the dark. Our wedding garment is the cloak of righteousness. Is the cloak of Jesus' righteousness because of what he did on the cross. That's what we are cloaked in. And because of that, we anticipate shedding this current clothing to be further clothed in something greater. And Paul already discussed this in a previous letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. He said, for this perishable dying body, not meant to last. That's what perishable means. You know what that means? You leave something out of the fridge and it, 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 it's not supposed to be left out of the fridge and you know what happens. So this perishable body must be put on the, must put on the imperishable or eternal. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on Im- imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? Um, the CSB translation here does pretty good with 2 Corinthians 5, this text we're looking at. Back at verse 2 in CSB, it says, Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we don't want to be unclothed but clothed, so that the mortality may be swallowed up by life. I like the way that one reads. So, where am I getting Holy Spirit from? I know I made this whole text around, or this section around, be clothed by the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul references mortality. We just read it as, as death. And he contrasts it, contrasts it with life. And the Holy Spirit is the source of that life. The Holy Spirit is the source of that life. Nothing in us is capable of reaching the further clothing that he's referring to here. We cannot do it at all. In ourselves, it requires life. That life comes from the Holy Spirit. He said mortality here. Mortality makes clear that this, this earthly body is 
designed only to be temporary. It's not designed to be forever, this earthly body. It's mortal. Uh, Madonna wrote a song, of course, very famous song, stating clearly that she was a material girl living in a material world. Um, what that basically propagates is the idea that what you see is all there is. There's nothing else. If it's touchable, it's there. If it's not touchable, it doesn't exist. However, that's so easily disproven by so many things. Wind, breath, our breath, uh, emotions, love, for instance. Can't see it, but you certainly know it's there or not there. Uh, when we say that we're looking at someone's heart, like God said he looked at David's heart, but, but we'd say the same thing. Um, we, we, you know, what do we mean? We're attempting to look at the inner person. You know, not looking at the guy on the outside, trying to look at the one on the inside, trying to know the true self here. That What do we mean? It's the same thing. It's not the physical person we're looking for. We can see the physical person plain as day. Uh, Paul would argue here clearly that we are all, all of us, actually two different people. Wholly separate, yet temporarily united. A physical self and a spiritual self. All of us, everyone, is in that state or in that condition. And when he says our mortality is swallowed up by life, it's an act of the Holy Spirit for those of us who are believers right now. Right now. It's something the Holy Spirit is doing to us right now in preparing us for that, that body. Look at verse 5 of chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. I'm back in ESV now. He, ha- he who has prepared, look at that, past tense, us for this very thing is God. Who has given, past tense, us the Spirit as a guarantee. We have a house, a body that is prepared for us. That was in verse 1. And here Paul says that God has also prepared us for that eternal house. By giving us the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. Not as a loan. Not as a condition of good behavior. Not, you know, unless we decide to give him back like a Christmas present we hated. But as a guarantee. Listen to me really clearly. As a guarantee, he's not something that we are gifted. He is someone we are sealed with. You understand what I'm saying? He is not something that we are gifted. He is someone we are sealed together with. Ephesians 1 verse 13, Paul said, In him, in Christ, you also, when you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, he says, and believed in him, when you heard and believed in that moment, when you heard and believed, you were, past tense, sealed, past tense, with the promised, past tense, Holy Spirit. It's already done. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? He is our guarantee. He seals our position in Christ. It's already happened. We are already, at the moment we believed, sealed by the Holy Spirit, clothed by Him, prepared for the future further clothing. All right? And because of that, Paul says this, verse 6, So we are always of good courage. Be aware that you are temporary. Be clothed by the Holy Spirit. And then be courageous in life now. Look what he says. So we are always of good courage. Always, right now, all the time. Good courage. Not just courage. Good courage. Not just happy good feelings. Good courage. It's both things, right? 
he says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Well, it, what he's saying there, in the body, we are away from the Lord, he says that in light of the fact that he just said the Holy Spirit is within us, the Holy Spirit is here. So it doesn't mean we're separated from God. It means we're moving towards more of him. It means we're, we're walking that way by faith towards more of him, that there's more of him to discover, that there's more of him to know, that there's more of him to love, that there's more of him to learn about, that there's more of him to grow in, that there's more of him to talk about. That's what we are now growing towards uh, until the day when we are absent from the body and then faith becomes sight. And we see him. But until then, he says in verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, yes, we are of good good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he says, walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus made a similar statement. John 20, verse 29, he asked a, a disciple here, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The same thing. It says walk by faith. Notice it doesn't say react by faith doesn't say, you know, hey, man, don't let anybody test you. But if they do, man, be strong. Be strong. Hey, make sure if anybody ever pushes you, you lean on your faith. It's not talking about, you know, the whenevers. It doesn't say talk by faith. Because talk is cheap, honestly. And talking really means nothing if there's nothing behind it. So it says walk. What that means is that what we believe guides our every move. It guides our every step. Not what we see before us or around us. Those things don't weigh in. What guides us is our faith alone. That's it. And we're actively moving because of what we believe in the direction of what we anticipate. We are actively moving because of what we believe in the direction of what we anticipate. That's what it means to walk by faith. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's where that language comes from. Uh, there are some, you know, faiths out there that would argue or propose the idea of soul sleep, which basically means that when we die, we are in a state of sleep until Christ comes in order that we're all ris- risen together. Um, and I guess in your body, your, your soul remains in your body is the idea there. But there's a lot of reasons that I find problems with that in Scripture. And I know where the ideas come from because the intermixing of the word sleep and dying um, in the language of the New, New Testament and even some in the Old. But a couple of areas where – I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this just really fast. A couple of areas where I have a problem with that. For one, this is one. He's talking about, I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, which means he's anticipating that that would be his destination if he was not with the body. And some say, well, the soul stays with the body. Okay, well, here's some others. The thief on the cross. Jesus told him, today you will be sound asleep waiting for my second coming. No, you will be with me. And he says in paradise, we don't even have to go there. He says, today you'll be with me. So if that be the case, then that means that Jesus is sleeping too, which we obviously know is not true. The rich man and Lazarus story that Jesus tells about these two who die, uh, one is in basically paradise and one is in suffering in Hades, and they are having this communication, so they're not asleep. And in having the communication, they discuss uh, family members. You can read the story in your own time, Jesus telling this story. 
but they discuss family members who are still alive. So it's not after the end of all things, there's still life on earth that they are uh, discussing or talking about. So they're not sleeping. When Jesus is on the mountain and he is transfigured in front of his disciples into holiness, you can look the story up as well. Uh, he has three disciples there with him. They witness Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus and talking to them. They all talk, or well, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah do. So Moses and Elijah, who are long dead, are clearly aware of something that they're discussing with Jesus. They have not been asleep. And again, perhaps another one of the stronger arguments here as well is Philippians 1, verse 21, um, where Paul is torn between dying and being with Christ or staying alive for the sake of the gospel. That would never have been a struggling a struggle for him at all if dying meant, hey, I'm going to take a dirt nap for about 2,000 years or however long. He would have naturally not wrestled with that if the next thing on his radar was a soul sleep. His next thing on his radar was presence with God. Philippians 1.21 says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire, look what he says, is to depart. Depart, not take a nap, depart and be with Christ. Two different things. I'm leaving the body and I'm going to be present with Christ. And he says, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So be of good courage. You know what? Right now, here for the sake of the gospel, walk in anticipation of that. So be aware that you are temporary, be clothed in the Holy Spirit, be courageous in life right now, and then be anxious to stand before Christ. Some might say be prepared, but I don't like prepared. I think it should go well beyond being prepared, not having your ducks in a row, counting the days, man. Please let the day come. Look what he says, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. What he means by home or away is whether we're in, in the body or whether we're in heaven or whether we're in the body. Home is heaven, the heavenly body. Away is here now in this earthly body. And he's saying, so whether we're in heaven or whether we're here in this body, we aim to please the Lord. So that tells you something. If that's applicable, listen to me, in both places. If that's applicable in both places, pleasing the Lord, then it's not about getting some reward for finishing the race. It's about living now the way that we will live then. Because it will still be applicable then. You're not going to get, okay, you finished the race, now go sit down. No, we're living now the way we will live then. And the reward is finally being there to do it. You know? Remember the order of things here. It's not just about aiming to please God so you can get to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, Paul said we already have eternal security. He said we know that we have. And he said he has prepared and he has given, past tense. He's, he's already used this language. It's already set up. It's already done. So in light of that, we aim to please God. It's about making a father proud. It's about hearing that phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. Welcome home, son. You did good. That's my dream. That's the one I'm after right there. And it's about living a life that expresses gratitude for the fact that someone died to save you from death. 
He goes on in verse 10. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Judgment seat there is a Greek uh, term for what's called a bema seat, which was a raised platform. It was used in the Greek world for two major purposes. The most common was for judging, uh, hearing a court scenario and making a judgment call. The other was uh, where competitors would receive their rewards for a race that they had won. And again, he's not talking about salvation here when he's talking about this judgment seat of Christ because Romans 8.1, for instance, there is therefore now, right now, presently, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is nothing in your salvation-related experience to be judged by Christ on. That's already been done and handled. Uh, Paul talked about what he's talking about here with this judgment seat of Christ. He'd already addressed that a little bit in 1 Corinthians as well with the same church. In verse three, he's, or chapter 3, he says in verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid already, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, what he means is, is, is your Christian life, your Christian work is built on the salvation that Christ gave you already. Okay? It's not about earned salvation. It's about Christ gave you the foundation of salvation, and now you're building on it, okay? And he says, if you build on it with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, he said, each one's work will be manifest. It will be revealed. It will be known. For that day, the day of Christ's coming, the day we stand before Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, all interchangeable intention here, for that day we'll disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. Fire purifies. So fire is going to test what's pure. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, then it was precious metal that survived the fire. And he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up or worthless straw, he will suffer loss. Look what it says. Though he himself will be saved. Again, it's not about salvation. It's about the work of those who are saved, but only as through fire. So only as experiencing an act of purification. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, I just stick that verse on there to clarify that he's talking about believers here in everything he just said. Okay. You ever hear somebody talk about their life's work? Uh, whether they're talking about their own or they're talking about, you know, you're referring to somebody else's life's work. What do you mean by that? What, what's meant by that? Life's work. Well, that's what Christ is going to examine. Only Christ gets to decide when time's up. Christ gets to decide when it's complete. Your life's work is complete and now it's up for examination. Again, if you're a believer, how prepared are you if that's this afternoon? I weigh that one on myself. I'm just saying. As a Christian, what do you think a life's work should be? What do you think it should be? What should be included in that that would please him? What do you think? That you made disciples, surely. That you shared the gospel. That you showed mercy. That you served others. That you suffered. I don't know, but you might start thinking about a list of what that might look like and then evaluating is what's going to happen when Christ torches your work. How much of what you do is directed towards pleasing others? And I'm talking about pleasing people in order that you win approval for yourself. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus said in Matthew 6 that you already have that reward. You received it from them. 
You got their praise. So the question is, what will Jesus find in your body of work that he might reward? Ask yourself that. What will Jesus find in your body of work, in your life's work, that he might reward? Now, if you're the kind of person that's wrestling with determining what those rewards are, listen to me, you are already wrong. If you're hearing me say all this and you're trying to figure out what those rewards are, you're already wrong. Because it means you're trying to determine if you're really losing anything by doing very little. I'm just being honest. Or you're trying to determine where your present standings are and if you've been good enough, which you can't be good enough. We've already established that Christ alone is the one who provides salvation. And so now what you're trying to figure out is, well, where's your present standing? Maybe you need to amp it up based on what judgment might look like. And I want to make sure I get that reward, what that is. I'm not saying you shouldn't try, but you're missing it. Listen, it's like this. If you're overwhelmingly living your life sacrificially to glorify and please Christ, then you won't ask that question. Did you just hear, hear what I just said? If you are overwhelmingly living your life sacrificially to glorify Christ and please Him alone, you won't ask what the reward is. Because I can tell you, you already know what it is. It's Him. He alone is the reward that you want. That's it. And that's living in light of dying. That's living in light of dying. Uh, let me close with this. As believers, it, it, it doesn't have to be radical spiritual warfare here. But it means facing death and displaying a peace that is this curious and a noticeable excitement for what comes after that. Trip Lee expressed it really well. A uh, Christian rapper in a song that he wrote called Take Me There. Read you a quick few moments of lyrics here. He says, tell me, have you seen her? She's sick with the disease and it's really trying to beat her. It takes all her strength. She knows that it can't defeat her because she's going to be with Jesus. She's more than just a dreamer. Her peace and her joy, man, it really ain't gone. It's all because she knows earth really ain't home. And when she's by herself, she really ain't alone. Her Savior's there with her while she's singing this song. She knows sickness might get her and death might grab her, but she ain't scared of death because she's trusting in the Master. Was buried, but he rose up a few days later. So death might attack her, but death cannot have her. So she tells her family, don't worry anymore. When she's gone from the body, she'll be present with the Lord. Her body will be raised. So much glory is in store. Her, He is her reward. So she sings, I just want to go where I'm only breathing your air. Father, hear my prayer and take me there. I just want to see you brighter than I'm used to. Finally see it clear. Take me there. That's what's up. And listen, do you fear death? If you don't know Christ, do you fear death? Do you wonder about what's uncertain beyond the last breath that you take? Jesus promised, because I live, you also will live for those who walk by faith. Can you put your faith in him today? Can you say, Lord Jesus, I trust that this is the truth. I trust that I am a sinner for whom you died. I accept the responsibility of my sin and I lay it at your feet. Can you say that? Jesus, I trust you. Forgive my sin. Give your Holy Spirit to me that I can walk by faith. Can you say that? If you can, I can promise that you will be able to anticipate 
anticipate an amazing, amazing eternity in an amazing body with the creator of all things. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word as always. It's so awesome. I pray, God, you're glorified today in all that's been said. And I pray, God, you bring glory to your name through your word, even as uh, we go throughout our week and the moments that we open it, read it, share it, speak it to others. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.